I think that what we've demonstrated over the last 10 years is that we definitely have electoral power when we're able to flex our muscle, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As voters of color as a whole, as an organization, the voters who we engage are consistently between 4% to 10% of the vote share in any given election. Our work that we do as an organization may not be the reason that you, that you win, but it definitely can be the reason that you lose. <laughs> hello, hello. I'm Solana Rice. And I am Jeremy Greer. Welcome to Racism is Profitable. Today we have a great guest on, Pablo Rodriguez of Communities for a New California. We are so excited to talk to him about what he's seeing in California in electoral races. But before we do that, we should probably just catch up, Jeremy. You were on vacation. Yeah, I was on vacation and I was like, so people are gonna laugh because I was like on this really white ass vacation where like I went to Maine and you know, and I realized that going to Maine, like how few black people there are in Maine because people told me it's beautiful. Yeah. It is beautiful. It place. is. People should yeah. go if you want natural beauty, but there's a lot of white folks in Maine. Um, but it was very relaxing and very good. But then while I was there, I was trying not to look at my phone. <laughs> I was trying not to look at Twitter. But I did, and this inflation reduction act passed. And, uh, and, and, yes. and I was watching all this stuff come across. It was like the IRA, the IRA, and I was like, "What the fuck is happening in Ireland? Yeah. Like, why, yeah. why is it <laughs> the IRA, the IRA, the IRA?" And, and this this <laughs> act passed. So you know, first thing I did, you know, when I got back to work on Monday, was you know, I want to, I need to read up on this. Something big happened, and. It's this bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is $433 billion for um, energy and climate change and um, for the Affordable Act, Care Act extension, which is good, like good stuff in there. Um, and then some tax revenue, you know, 15% corporate minimum tax, mm -hmm. prescription mm -hmm. drug reform. So, so like good stuff. But then I was reading on in the, in the like articles, I was like, oh, this was supposed to be, this is what <laughs> Build Back Better has become. So now I'm like, maybe this isn't a good thing. Like maybe I Isn't it like like when you happy. when you go past your favorite store and the letters still look like it's the old store and you're yeah. like, but wait, this isn't huh? This is now a cold? dollar store? Is that good? Right. Is that good? Yeah, like <laughs> what happened to the Fuddruckers? Like yeah, what, exactly. what, what the, the the sign's still there, but it doesn't look open. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was feeling like. Like so so one, I yeah. was confused, of course, like many people, because this is called the Inflation Reduction Act, and so I, I'm, you, do you know what, what's, why, why is it? The I, I, I can only, I can only guess. Well, what the Democrats are saying is that people are really feeling inflation, so we got to do something about inflation, but they're acting like we don't know what inflation is. <laughs> We know it is. <laughs> so <laughs> let me get this straight. Uh, I get climate change is real and I get that we need to address it. There's a whole lot of stuff that we need to do. 
Uh, but people are feeling a housing crisis because that's actually mm-hmm. our largest expense, right? That's mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. are the things that cost is going right. up. Uh, right. Gas and oil prices are going up, but from what I can tell, this doesn't actually directly get to let's stop lining the pockets of mm. oil barons. I, I the folks in the in the Gulf, for example. Um, are talking, you know, they've been doing social and and climate justice for a long time and racial justice for a long time. And they're like, this doesn't, this does like carbon capture and all this stuff after people have polluted. This doesn't actually get the big oil out of their backyards. As a matter of fact, a lot of these places, you still have to uh, they have leases, right? The oil, the oil folks have leases on the land, and before renewable energy can be put on that land, those corp, those those oil leases have to be up. So it's like, wait, what did we really, what did we really right. do? Right. And not yeah, to no. mention, like this was a big. I was like, why, why were we able to do this now? We weren't, we we couldn't do Build Back Better, and we couldn't do voting rights. But we could why, do this. Why, we but could we could do this. Do this. What, what is, yeah. What's different about this? And the victory lap is, so Build Back Better was $2.2 trillion. Like, that was what was put forth. And it had all the stuff you just mentioned. Housing, child care. Yeah. yeah. Extending the, like, stuff that would matter to black and brown folks, like, immediately. Yeah. And, and in my research for the, for my research coming back, I went to one of my go-to people on climate, which is... Rihanna Gunn Wright from the Roosevelt Institute. And one of the things that she said in this Twitter thread I read, you know, that's how we research now, um, (laughs) is (laughs) that actually a lot of the investments that are going to be made will actually harm black and brown communities. So it's like, so one, we're not doing any of the things that we said we were going to do for black and brown communities. And two, we're going to do this thing that in the long run will actually probably harm black and brown communities. And what we're, and, and the, what gets me is it's like, oh, so you couldn't get all that stuff before, and this is the thing right. you're going to pull Joe Manchin and Christian Cinema into the uh, uh, Chuck Schumer's going to pull into the offense and, and like twist their arm to make happen. It's going to be for this, but not any of the other stuff that they got exactly. Pulled out. Yeah, exactly. Well, and we kind of know why. There's a great article um, on Atmos uh, by a great author. Um, Yesenia Funes, who, and I'm probably saying that right, wrong, just sorry about that, but who talks about all of the like terrible things, like there are some great things in this Inflation Reduction Act, but there are a lot of things where we've just said, hey, a lot of the good stuff really outweighs like some of the bad stuff. But I think the bad stuff is the stuff that we had to give to Joe Manchin, right? Joe Manchin was like, I got this pipeline to build, y'all. It's got to go through West Virginia. Hello. This is going to help black and brown community, but we're going to keep running <laughs> pipelines through indigenous communities and make investments. like that. That's it. I mean, that's it, right? Yeah. Yeah. But we're supposed yeah. to be excited that, about this. Yeah. Yeah. So there has to be a time where we can make these major investments and we're not making them at the at the cost of black and brown communities. Like we just we can't keep operating this way. 
Um, well, you know, well, and the Medicare no thing. That, but the white progressives will get them get their tax rebate on their Tesla. So, on their you know, <laughs> we're doing something. That, that's yeah, stimulant. I mean, just. And just all the thing, even the even the prescription drugs, like the there was a carve out for insulin. It was like let's make sure that insulin does not go above thirty five dollars a month. And you know who need the the people who need insulin are folks with diabetes, folks like Black people, Indigenous people who have high rates of diabetes. Not their fault. It's a whole that's a whole other episode. But there was a carve out. No, only no people that are on private insurance. We can't cap the insulin rate. Uh, so we constantly, we constantly see that again, racism is profitable. Um, even in this, in this back and forth around this great inflation reduction act that doesn't seem to actually be reducing inflation. Did you see the piece that the Congressional Budget Office did a quick? Uh-huh. Summary. No, I didn't. What did they say? The, <laughs> the Republicans are like, this is going to increase our deficit and going to harm inflation. It's just going to increase inflation. <laughs> and the Dems are like, this is going to reduce inflation. And it's like, where, who, huh, huh? Because and the CBO is like, it's not really going to do anything. <laughs> it's not going to do anything. Because what the CBO knows that these people are, 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 are is that... The size of deficit has jack shit to do with inflation. Like that's the reality. So they're they're going. So if the inflation reduction, because that was my confusion, what is going to reduce inflation <laughs> in this bill? I guess lowering prescription drugs, good thing. Well, but, but uh, you know, like, but hey, like, fuck it. Let's can we put insulin in there? Like, come on. But yeah, exactly. That aside, like, yes, that'll do it. But like. Inflation, the deficit has nothing to do with inflation, nothing. And so the idea that like, because they're raising more taxes than they are doing spending in this bill, which then means that that delta that, you know, one subtracted by the other creates the delta. And then you can put that towards deficit reduction, that in some way that's going to affect inflation. And it's not. Most economists will tell you it's not. So the, the the it's hilarious to me that this is what this centered around, and really it's yeah. about people have inflation on their mind because exactly. they're paying higher prices. So right. we'll just throw the name in a bill and get the bill passed. And um, get the bill passed, right? And my thing is, well, like, and I'm I, fine with that as a tactic, but can we get some housing relief? Can we get <laughs> some damn like basic income, some childcare relief? Can we get some of that too? Like, but also like actual corporate, actual corporate accountability. I mean, let's be real. This in, this inflation that we are seeing is price gouging. It is essentially price gouging. So, yeah, there's a great, there's a great, I, Robert Reich, who's friend of the show, has a great um, video about the, the role between, the, the actual connection between corporate yeah. greed and inflation yes. and that, that being a yes. real thing. And if we're talking about, we want to fight inflation, let's, uh, you know, let's fight racism. Like we're, we're here to talk about racism <laughs> is profitable. People making money off of the high prices of insulin, the high prices of, of, of things in black and brown communities, all this stuff, like let's address that. And then you'll address yeah. inflation. Like that's essentially the part of the argument that, that he's making. So like, if we want to do that. Like, like let's, let's go in that direction and not do this 
this like kabuki act that they're, they're doing <laughs> right now. I mean, and then I don't want to crap on the the bill too much because like there is some good stuff in there. Yes, we all live on Earth, and improving the Earth and improving yeah. the environment is a good thing. There are things that are going to make a difference in that. But like, let's stop doing this thing where it's like, oh, but in order to do environmental climate change policy, we have to like ignore black and brown communities because that's what it feels like right now. You mentioned electric vehicles. And I think this just goes to the point that this is about corporations still making money and not being harmed, right? <laughs> uh, so the ink isn't even dry <laughs> as it goes over to the house to get voted on. And Ford Motor Company. Being signed with a feather pen. <laughs> <laughs> Ford Motor Company is like, oh, we have to, um, hi, we, we're, we're announcing that we have to increase the uh, costs um, our materials costs have gone up on our electric vehicle production. Uh, so, uh, sorry, y'all. <laughs> so, in anticipation of more people buying electric vehicles, Ford Motor Company says, oh, look at that. Just coincidentally, materials costs go up as well. Well, it's, I, I looked at the, the it's like $4,000 rebate. And like seven thousand, four thousand for a used electric vehicle, yeah, and seven like seven thousand five hundred for a, 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 a new one. Last I checked, them things were like fifty grand. So uh, <laughs> I don't know many low moderate income people that can no. afford a fifty grand a car for fifty grand. And I'll tell you, four thousand dollars ain't gonna like no. move them very far in the direction of buying them. So. I, I even on that provision, I have a lot of hesitation to believe that it's actually gonna gonna matter much uh, yeah. to to many people. So, but I think Jeremy, the takeaway here is that we can make big changes. We can do big things, right? We can mm -hmm. pass ma major legislation when there is political will. We can, um, and we need people in these positions that aren't going to use us as pawns in the political calculation. Right. Which is why it's so important that we get in gear for this election, which is why we're talking to Pablo Rodriguez. And uh, so I'm looking forward yeah. Uh, to that. Yeah. Wonderful. Hello, Pablo. Hey, y'all. It's good to be with you both. Yeah, you too. How you doing? You too. Last time we were in person, yeah. not too long ago. Yeah. yeah. Right at the base of the foothills of the Sierra Nevada. So it was nice. It was lovely. It was really lovely. It was great to see you. Um, thanks so much for joining the pod today. Uh, why don't we just start with like, what do people need to know about Pablo Rodriguez? Oh my God. Um, well, again, my name is Pablo Rodriguez. I'm the executive director, founding executive director of Communities for a New California Education Fund, which is a 501c3 charity. Um, I'm also the director and founding director of uh, Communities for New California Action Fund, which is a 501c4 social welfare organization and an officer uh, within the 527 Communities for New California Political Action Committee. 
all of that mm-hmm. to say mm-hmm. that those were entities that we needed to create to be able to navigate um, federal and state tax law so that we could do work, right? Advocating for brown and black folk and working class families in California and the rural area specifically. I think that that's the baseline of what people should know about who I am. And a big part of what it is that we do is that we run and we track uh, multiple, well, many levels of local government to federal government. But in this case, I thought that we would highlight as I was invited, right, to talk about the congressional races and um, the what's happening, especially in rural California, where there's six districts that we are tracking that could potentially have a really big impact on the control of Congress um, with the upcoming election in November. Yeah, last time we were together, we were talking about all of the conversations that you all in CSC are having across the San Joaquin and Coachella Valleys in California. I wonder, can you share with the audience just a little bit about those conversations, who we, who you're talking to, what, what, what they're telling you? Yeah, so thank you for bringing that up. So CNC, as we just go by the, those three organizations that we highlighted, actually does work or implements work in 17 counties in California. So they're in the San Joaquin Valley, the Sierra Foothills, and the Coachella Valley. And so overall, what we do, there's an, there's an array of work that we do where we are a multi-issue organization. And so we are working with people who essentially are facing the economic fallout of the pandemic, bleak job opportunities, a housing crisis that is leaving people behind, right, and pushing families out of their homes, climate change in the form of toxic drinking water, pervasive health issues, which are specific, more specifically, right, I want to talk about, we're talking about the impact of climate change specific to wildfires, drought, and pesticide use uh, as another health outcome, right, that um, ends up impacting families. So that's broadly what it is that we work on um, with the committees that we that we work with, the volunteers. Um, CNC builds neighborhood committees to finish unfinished neighborhoods and, and address these issues, right? And since meeting you all a couple of years ago, I'm happy to say that we formed these committees as a way to address that we need to end the profitability of white supremacy and mm. end the theft, exploitation, and exclusion of brown, black, indigenous, and families of color across California. And so for us, we just mm. focus on the rural areas of California, which are now battlegrounds in congressional races across the country. So I yeah. was trying to be as short as I could, and there you go. No, 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 no. No need to be short. I noticed that you emphasize battlegrounds. You want to say why you – isn't it just a swing district, Pablo? I mean, oh what – I mean no. – so what's <laughs> happening, right? And I think that we'll talk about it more, right, of, of what's happening. But like swing district makes it seem like it's only Democrat versus Republican, right? In the mm. races, like it could swing one way or the other. And in the six districts that we're talking about, which go from Stockton, California, down to down past Bakersfield, right into the high desert of Palmdale. Um, there's four districts there, which are Congressional District 9, 13, 21, 22. 
And then in the high desert is 27. And then in the Coachella Valley, there's a new district, which is Congressional District 41. And so okay. I think that what's really important to, to note about each one of these districts is nearly 30% of registered voters in each one of these districts are registered as independent voters. So there are independent mm. voters who feel strongly that neither political party nor candidates representing those parties are doing enough to earn their votes. So we've mm. seen an increase, right? It's not enough just to say like, hey, there's now 30% independent voters in each one of these districts. There's been an increase on average in, the, well, in all of these districts and since 2008 of between 9 to 14% increase in party affiliation as independent voters. And so, mm. again, we know that the parties are not earning their votes. And what is really clear to see, you all were talking about this, is that corporations have too much of an influence on what is happening with the political parties. Yeah. So I think that what it's also important to state is that we did a lot of work on making sure that there was a complete count with the census. And the census, mm -hmm. which triggers redistricting, has resulted in the San Joaquin Valley, the battlegrounds that I'm talking about, which were formerly thought to be conservative strongholds. There are now three new Latino majority congressional districts. Congressional mm -hmm. District 13, um, 21, and 22. More than 50% of the voters are Latinos. But I want to be really clear, when you hear new majority Latino district, you need to think about Latina women and Latina women voting power because mm -hmm. consistently Latina women outvote Latino men by a margin of 54 to 46%, which is the vote share, right? Whenever you see Latino turnout was, you know, in this district, right? Women are outpacing their male counterparts. 54, 46, consistently across all of these districts. And so the path towards victory, if a candidate wants to win, and I'll talk about some of these folks that are running, needs to address issues that are face, are being faced, like the ones that we just mentioned, by Latina women. And you need to center that in order to ensure victory. Otherwise, you are doing your not, yourself not only a disservice, but you're on a path towards defeat. And yeah, I'll stop right there. But that, that's broadly, I think, what it is that's really impacting these battlegrounds that formerly there's we need to end the myth, right, that in the Central Valley, that is a, that it is a conservative stronghold. That is no longer the case in the census and redistricting proof through data that the region and the demographics have changed. Unfortunately, there are some candidates that haven't got the memo. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't get the memo. Well, Pablo, you mentioned, so you mentioned these uh, independent voters, people coming in and, and recognizing themselves as independent. And like in a national context, that's usually signaling towards that they're like maybe center left or seven center right kind of people, that they may be attracted to certain conservative issues or they may be center left, but that means that they would never support like progressive kind of ideas like, you know, $15 minimum wage, for example, or, or things like that. Like that's the kind of conventional wisdom. Do you think that applies with Because what I also hear you saying is that these are largely Latino voters that are recognizing independence. So I just want, does that logic 
fit with this based on the research and data y'all been looking at? No. Period. Yeah. And I'm, I wish I could do it with the way we do it on online, right? Where it would be a period with a T. No. Period. Yeah. So let me dig into that a little bit, right? So what's happening is that there are many people who are like me, who I'm a Latino male, Mexican in this case, right? But there are many other Latinos, right? So. Um, that I live in the San Joaquin Valley and the Coachella Valley, right? In the Sierra Foothills as well. And what we have seen in the workplace, right? Where we grew up, right? We have seen our families struggle as we grew up in, in these valleys um, with not making a living wage, mm -hmm. not receiving benefits for work, whether it be health benefits mm -hmm. or seniority or vacation pay, whatever, right? If we, wherever, depending on where we live, we not, may not be able to drink the water that comes out of our tap. We have toxic drinking mm -hmm. water in both the Coachella Valley and the San Joaquin Valley and many areas of the Sierra Foothills. The air is now toxic to, to breathe, in, depending on where we're at because of the use of pesticides. Or in the Sierra Foothills, because of now rampant wildfires where the fire season last about nine months out of the year and that didn't used to be the case mm. we are you know going into what we used to call fall and fall used to start in september we don't have fall anymore right we will have 100 plus degree temperatures right before my birthday in october and those used to be days that were very cool that doesn't happen anymore mm. so because we are able to see the reality of what's around us inherently not just latinos but many young people who are growing up in these regions, and so I'll say Latinos and Generation Z, mm. are not necessarily buying into the party politics that there's one good guy versus a bad guy, mm. right? Democrats, for the lack of results on relation on issues related to climate change, um, and Republicans for denying that COVID is real, that climate change is real, they're not the good guys either, right? So to go to your question, inherently, what I argue is that if you grew up in this, these regions and you're a young person or a Latino, you are inherently a progressive person. Mm. And that maybe mm. does not apply to other regions of California. But mm. again, maybe just add to that, right? If you're a family, you're from a family of color in any of these regions, inherently, there are things that your family has experienced that will say that resonates with me. That makes total sense to me. I am behind that, right? And then when we deconstructed, I'm saying like the theft, exploitation, and exclusion of people of color are the reasons why these things are happening. Yeah. Then we change the conversation completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Pablo, I just want to make sure that folks understand the size of the areas that you're talking about. Cause we're just talking about like, oh, congressional district, this congressional, this at that, this valley, that valley, but we're talking about like millions of people, right? Yeah, so if you were to combine the regions that we're talking about, right? Like the Coachella Valley and the San Joaquin Valley, right? And the Sierras, we're larger than Georgia, mm. right? We're, we're more than 10 million people. And they're spending a lot so, of money down in Georgia right now. <laughs> they are spending a lot of money in Georgia. <laughs> it's wild, right? In some in some of these places, like maybe just give it down to the state level, right? 
where state senate, there's 40 state senate districts, right, in California. Each district has 1 million people, right? There's 40 million total mm -hmm. people in California. So 1 million yeah. people in each one. Pick your state. We're larger, mm -hmm. many counties, right, <laughs> are larger than some states. The county of Fresno by itself has over 1 million people, mm -hmm. right? So what we're really talking about is not county level work. When we mention some of the counties that we're talking about, it really mm -hmm. is high density, many people impacted. It's a myth to think that the inland region of California is rural. It just may be geographically, but there's high density of families that are now living in these regions for many, for, well, for a lot of reasons, right? One of them, the latest ones being I can't afford to live in Southern California and I can't afford to live on the coast, whether it be San Francisco, San Jose, let me go inland. And that's what's happened, right? So I think that there are many things. Yes, and I appreciate you bringing up the fact that these regions are very big. And I said Georgia, right? But we're bigger than Arizona, Nevada, Oregon, right? And I believe Washington State as well. But yeah, if we were... If the even if you just take San Joaquin Valley, if it was just San Joaquin Valley, we would be the 14th largest state in the in the United States. So these are very big regions. And it also talks about what the stakes are in these congressional races. So you mentioned some of the the uh, districts at the top, but tell us more about what we're seeing. I guess like which which battleground are you most hype about? Like like. We got to do the thing in this in this race. Well, that's a hard question to answer. Right? I think that what I'm hyped about is that in previous cycles, there was always only one seat that was just like, oh, that's where we need to fight. That's the opportunity. We're talking about six, right, mm -hmm. that could really impact the way that Congress is is who controls Congress in after November, right? We're talking about a seat so or two. I think that that's seat what or two could flip the house. Well, What's that? If a seat or two could flip the house, you're talking yeah, about six. Exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And so I think that I'm really hyped. Uh, let me just start with this. I think that one of the, the seats that I'm really hyped about because it confirmed some of my projections and that, my, that I'm good at math, maybe, was. <laughs> <laughs> was the, the, the race that's happened in Southern California in the new Congressional District 41 of Ken Calvert versus Will Rollins. The challenger Will Rollins is now being viewed as a viable contender or challenger to um, Ken Calvert that's been in Congress for over 30 years. But Will Rollins is um, an open an, a, a gay man, right? Who has done a great job about building a coalition that is doing great fundraising that just may well right now for sure he's given ken calvert a lot of heartburn right because he's ken calvert's never had to raise money in the former district mm. right and now that brother mm. has to go like fundraise right and actually mm. run a campaign and talk to voters things that he's never had to do meanwhile will rollins right has oh by the way now that the district includes palm springs which has a, a very large LGBTQ community, Kim Calvert has decided uh -huh. to say, I've rethought and I've evolved on my positions of um, towards LG LGBTQ families. And so therefore I regret all of my votes. Magically. Oh, 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 oh. Oh, oh. <laughs> got the spirit okay. and uh, is, is, val is valued, right? 
But Will Rollins, I think to his credit, has really done a really good job of building a strong field campaign, building a coalition of voters who are progressive, who just may shock, right, Ken Calvert and the establishment in, in Southern California, right, of where this district is. On the flip side, I think that the districts that I'm really excited about um, is Congressional District 22, where Rudy Salas is poised to potentially, if everything were to go his way, be the first Latino elected in to Congress from the San Joaquin Valley ever. Wow. And so that's significant. Wow. In spite of the fact that because of his position, because he lives in Kern County, he has bad votes in regards to issues related to climate change, which is what ends up making him a moderate. I know him personally, and I think he's a really good guy. If you meet him, he's a really likable person, right? So I'm not saying anything that's bad about him, but to know me is to know that if I call somebody a moderate Democrat, it's kind of a diss, right? So but <laughs> we'll see when I see Rudy again, be like, yo, bro, we got to get right on climate change, right? But let me take this opportunity to highlight the path of what you should not do. So there's a candidate in the new District 13 whose name is Adam Gray, who is doing everything possible to lose a seat that should be safely Democrat. And Mm. if you go to his page, and I was just going through it today, and I was banging my head, and actually I lost so much time because I was just like in disbelief Right. I'm like, I followed it like as a tier B race about what was happening. But then I was like, this can't be right. And after looking on his website, right, it was just like this district is 50 percent Latino. But if you go to his website, all you see is endorsements and pictures of him with other white folks. Right. And then mm-hmm. I was just like, where's the message to he has to know math. Like there has to be messages right. that women or women in general. There's no, there's nothing there, right? His first endorsement is, you know, endorsement by a sheriff, um, who again are all fine people. They're unlikable people when you meet them, right? And but the the reality, if you guys really want to shake your head, is to go to his Instagram page. The very first picture on his Instagram page is of a group of like six or seven. Um, black youth at a Dr. King march. He's not in the picture, but there's a picture of black, young black people, right, in his Instagram mm. page. But as you go through all of his, all of his, his, um, his media, right, there overwhelmingly is a lack of presence. As if you were to not know this district, you would think that this district was not over sixteen or seventy percent people of color, you would think that it it's not that at all. And so yeah. he had a dismal showing in the primary where the Republican that is running against him is got more votes than him. And it just now has made him be a priority to defend. And people are going to have to spend money to defend and help keep the seat where just because he's not doing a good job about expanding the electorate, and engaging people of color to earn our votes, right? And so with I was texting some folks, I was just like, what's going on? Who are these folks' general consultant? And it seems to be that they're stuck in this mindset that the path towards victory is middle left. 
and that's mm. that's not the case. Yeah, right? and I'll go into more about that. But yeah, if you want to want to get an example of a mediocre candidate doing his best to lose control of Congress, you don't need to look any further than Adam Gray. Yeah, I'm looking now. There's this picture of him on his on a on a lawn with a sheriff, and not just a, any sheriff, like a sheriff wearing a cowboy hat and like the boots and like yeah, yeah. it's. Yeah, that's pretty. And then there's another one. Who looks like he's looks like a fundraiser of some kind that he's hanging around. There's like beers in this little. Yeah, he's yeah, it's all right. Yeah. So then there's this myth, right, that the San Joaquin Valley is a conservative stronghold. This is also home where he lives in Merced. Is home to UC Merced, mm-hmm. right, which has really changed the dynamics of the the region. If Adam Gray ends up winning, ironically, right, it's going to be because. Ana Caballero is a candidate who is the incumbent candidate for Senate, state Senate. And Esmeralda Soria, who is a Fresno City Council member who's running for assembly, they are doing and they have robust field campaigns where they are engaging mm. a coalition of voters who we are talking about, right? Yeah. So very likely they will engage the voters that Adam Gray needs to, to win. Mm. Will those voters vote down ballot for a candidate who has not earned their vote? That is the mm. outstanding question. They definitely will vote for Ana Caballero and for um, mm. and for Esmeralda Soria, but will they root? Will they vote for Adam Gray because he's not showing up? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was an event that happened in South Merced. I understand just recently in South Merced. So you know, is the half of the city in the city of Merced where there's high density of working class people and people of color. And in spite of the event being for him, he didn't show up, right? Mm. And so there's just like every red flag that's going on. <laughs> and my mind is just like, how how is this happening? Who, why are you not even just looking at the basics, right? And it's such a stark contrast to the way that Rudy Salas is running this campaign. Right. And it's such a stark contrast in the way that um, Will Rawlings is running his campaign. It's such a stark contrast in Christy Smith in, in the high desert who's running her campaign. Everybody, all of them, who did I miss? Jim Costa, right? And he was, Jim Costa is a moderate, right? But they all have done very, very um, be, much better job of outreaching and engaging voters of color to earn their votes and expand the electorate and than Adam Gray has, right? And it's just amazing to me. Pablo, the stakes are fairly high in these races. And as you mentioned, some of the candidates aren't like our ideal candidates and we need to support them. How do you balance those two when you're talking to folks? And how are you <laughs> how are you also rooting out like the the folks that just really we, we should not be supporting? That's a really difficult question, right? Because I think that what we've demonstrated over the last 10 years is that we definitely have electoral power when we're able to flex our muscle, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As voters of color as a whole, as an organization, what I share with people is that I may not be able to bring you to 50% plus one so that you could win as a candidate, but we consistently, the voters who we engage are consistently between 4% to 10% of the vote share in any given election. 
And so what that means is that you may not be the reason that you, that you win, right? Our work that we do as an organization may not be the reason that you, that you win, but it definitely can be the reason that you lose. <laughs> so that's the way that we frame our work, right? It's like, that's why you need to take it seriously. The challenge is the recruitment of candidates, the funding of campaigns mm. is incredibly hard because although we've had people who we were hoping who would run, again, as an example in Congressional District 13, the reality that you need to raise over $2 million just to be viable. In 2008, if you could run raise two to $300,000, you were you were viable in Congress. But since the decision of the Supreme Court on Citizens United, that's completely changed. And the money in politics is obscene. So governing power, meaning that there are people and there's a bench of people who are elected to school board, city council, um, county board of supervisors, is not there, right? We have electoral power, but the lack of governing power and representation, especially for women, um, never mind just people of color, is not there in spite of the reality that this district or these th three districts that we're talking about really should and have the opportunity maybe in the next 10 years to reflect, if the districts were to reflect who the electorate is, they, these three districts should be represented by Latina women. But how do we root them out is really ended up being a, a there's a big pitfall because I don't have rich friends, right? I don't have like, hey, oh, that. we'll recruit you. We will show you the tactics of a campaign. We will help you build all of these things. And then, yes, I will help you fund all of this by ourselves. We're a part of coalitions, right, where we do have, and I shouldn't say we don't. I don't have rich friends. We have like people who we know who know other people that are wealthy, right? <laughs> And we're part of some coalitions, and there's really incredible work that's happening through the California Donor Table under the leadership mm -hmm. of Ludovic Blaine, right? Molly Watson, um, Rebecca Hamburg. All of those folks are doing incredible work yeah. of helping to bridge that gap. We are receiving attention and funding in the way that we haven't for these battlegrounds. And, it, and I can't say that enough for um, our work in partnership with the California Donor Table, because that goes across the San Joaquin Valley and the Coachella Valley, where before nobody else was paying attention until California Donor Table did. Mm. What will happen next is, is is up in the air, right? Because I wish I could give you a more mm -hmm. solid answer about how we have our pipeline, how we're doing all of these things. And that's the challenge for the next 10 years, going from yeah. electoral power to governing power and representation at all levels is I think the next challenge. Well, what's interesting, so I, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna flippantly ask a question that I think I know the answer to, but you know, you talked about these six races, we're talking about a house majority that is probably gonna be decided on a razor thin, um, either way, either for Republicans or Democrats. And we just talked about at least one candidate that you're worried is probably fucking it up and but you all have real insight into what the community cares about because you've talked to these people and you're collecting this data you talk to people but these but the way we know politics are done is they send these consultants in that bring these 
kind of analyses around what they think is happening. They 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 look at the place that you are and they think like, oh, it's rural. It's, you know, a lot of folks of color, so voter turnout's going to be low, like all the tropes. And the question I ask it, and, but what I want you to, what do you think is there? Why are they talking to you, right? Or people that you're, why are they bringing in these consultants from Washington or New York or, or even from like Sacramento, but not like what you care about Sacramento, but like the capital, right? But like, why are they not talking to folks like you who absolutely know what these people are, are concerned with? I think that that's another one of the myths that we need to to dispel, right? That there is and there has been a complete vacuum left, right? Because on the Democratic side, right, it's not by accident that the myth was the San Joaquin Valley and the Coachella Valley are conservative strongholds. We're going to lose there. Let's put our money elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So in 2008, you could go up and down the Highway 99. You could go down through the Coachella Valley on on Interstate 10. You could go down I-5 in the, the middle of, this, of, the, of California. You are not seeing Barack Obama signs. That's 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 a system wide thing, right? That's a party mm. thing that there was no investment, and as a result, it's by no accident that these districts now have thirty percent independent voters. The parties have not earned their votes, mm -hmm. right? So then, what was happening? Organizations like ours had to be born because there was a vacuum and there was nobody speaking for us. Right, mm -hmm. and we were not being represented by the Democratic Party um, because there's too many people like Adam Gray, right, who are <laughs> indifferent to us mm -hmm. or don't understand the power that we bring. So there's a self-perpetuating um, thing that ends up happening, right, where you will say, "Look, in the primary, the highest propensity voters are white families and white voters; they're homeowners." I'm going to focus on them. And then in the general election, when there's more people of color, then I'll focus and change and change gears, right? But that doesn't even happen, right? Because what ends up happening is that you might end up subscribing to um, get a subscription to political, political data intelligence. And if you're a candidate, right? And you're trying to, it's hard to raise money. So you might pay to get one of their pre-created voter universes and those universes eliminate right off the bat even if it's like the one with the lowest propensity voters tens of thousands of voters of color mm. right mm. in these districts each one of them just latino voters there are over 10 well consistently 15 to 10 to 15 percent of voters who are Latino who are identified as inactive voters who are not included in those pre-created universes. So if you have a subscription, you're if you're wise and have some experience, right? You know that you have to create your your own universe and not just go buy a list from PDI, mm -hmm. right? But there's not enough of those candidates that have general consultants that are telling them like, let's go expand the electorate. Instead, what they're saying is, here's a list of the highest propensity voters that. PDI has already um, given to us. Let's just call them and let's poll them. And there's another pitfall in what it is that I'm saying because 
if you have money for polling, right? We're asking who do you poll? If you have enough money in your campaign to poll, who are you calling? And again, the voters that I just mentioned are not included in your list. So the things that are important to voters that are majority in these districts are not getting engaged. And as a result, you're not earning their votes. And then you end up having to be like the people that are that are like flat earthers, right? Or just like, well, I can't tell why this is happening. Therefore, the earth is flat, right? And so because they don't understand science, in this case, because some of these candidates and their consultants yeah. don't understand voters of color, right? Then they don't reach out to us. Yeah. And I think that the other thing that I would say is like, in a good way, or what was my like, Kimo? Um, these are the folks, and we'll see, right, how I, this is received, right? But we know too many people who are candidates who are not not candidates of color, and I don't want this to be, be one of those things where I'm like, I'm anti-white, because that's not what's happening. Will Rollins is a good example of a progressive candidate who I'm wildly excited yeah. about, right? The part where I get have trouble with, right, is the candidates that are like, I'm not a white supremacist, I'm not racist, I have black friends, I have brown friends, and the reality is that you know black and brown people, but you're not friends with them. Right. Because if you really mm -hmm. were friends with them, they would be like, yo, this is what's, what you're doing wrong. <laughs> get it together. Right? You're not reaching out to our folk, right. and you're lacking. And it's clear that he doesn't have those people around him. And for whatever reason, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee has not like gotten through to him to be like, yo, get it together. Your district is more than 50% Latino, almost 70, 80% voters of color. And what are you doing with all of your social media that has zero representation of 80% of your district? What are you doing? Right. And that hasn't happened. Why? The same thing at the federal level, I would guess. Right. Of just being yeah. like, I don't know. It, it doesn't make any sense to me. Right. As I as I see it. Yeah, no, it's frustrating. It, what, what I heard you say was so important is that even the data that they're using to make these decisions erases black and brown communities that are present. And again, it's like if you got these types of districts and you're not working with people who know what these voters are talking about, what matters. And you mentioned a bunch of them in the beginning, water, <laughs> clean air, right? All these things, then it's going to be really hard for Democratic Party to, to win in these places because they're operating on old assumptions that don't match anymore. And that's why I think it's so important that you're doing the work that you're doing. Yeah, I mean, for us, we work our list to exhaustion, right? Yeah. Where we will be phoning and going door to door, leaving door hangers. But we're working, and maybe what it is, a better way to, to answer your question before is like, what is the difference of what we're doing? Is that we're actually knocking on their doors. Yeah. And what we find is that many of the folks will just say, I've never had a candidate come to, to my house. Mm-hmm. I've never had an organization come to my door other than you all that have been bugging for the last 10 years, right? But they still are not necessarily showing up, yeah. right? So the challenge for CNC, right, is to move voters from being, 
for the people, and let me just be clear about this, right? And I want to make sure that I don't give the impression that brown and black voters are not voting because that's not that's not right. true. So in the primary election turnout in, like, for example, in District 13 that we're talking about, Adam Gray, while 62% of the voters were white, 31% of the vote share were Latinos, 6% were Asian, and 2% were black black mm-hmm. voters, right? As much as you can tell, because um, PDI and the, the databases have a really hard time telling, right, who, who are black voters. Mm-hmm. But... <laughs> across the board you will see in like congressional district 21 34% of the voters were latino 8% asian 3% black in district 22 where jim costa is, i'm sorry where rudy salas is is running 41% of all voters were latino 50 only 52% were white right 4% asian and 2% african american so we are showing up in large numbers to be considered, right? To be taken seriously. And just like we were saying, right? Even if you were to take a small percentage and say, we can't get you to 50% plus one, but together we can definitely decide whether you lose is really significant, but we haven't had that opportunity yet, right? So there's some big challenges of the erasure in this case, exclusion, right? If the theory that it is that mm-hmm. you all introduced me to, that makes it profitable to recruit candidates that are indifferent to our needs um, because the status quo rewards right. these relationships, right? As you see um, where our families are excluded, right? And that goes across yeah. party lines because what you see in the Adam Gray social media across Twitter, Instagram, and his website is probably half of his endorsements are from Republicans, which is cool, but where are the people of color, right? You definitely are working to bring together people who you want to say are like historically not working together, but how are you excluding voters of color, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And there are candidates, again, like Christy Smith in Congressional District 27, Will Rollins in Southern California against Ken Calvert, and um, Rudy Salas in the Southern San Joaquin Valley and Jim Costa, who are doing a really good job. And again, in his backyard, Esmeralda Soria running for assembly and Ana Cabero running for Senate. Our doing this. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's it's political malpractice yeah. to be running a 2004 campaign in the year 2022. <laughs> Pablo, I feel like you've dropped some really important gems throughout. My question to you is going to be, this is obviously California. We've talked about these districts, big districts, important districts. My question to you is, what do you want folks in other states to know about how these outcomes might affect them? But I also just want to do like a recap of like what I've heard you say, what what I think are so important for anybody to know that are that is in the electoral space and trying to enfranchise and make sure that people of color, Black, Latino, Indigenous people are part of our process. I mean, I, I love the idea and the fact that you all are claiming your power day in and day out as an organization, 
right? That idea of we might not help you get that plus one, but we sure will. <laughs> <laughs> we sure do have some accountability on the other end of and some sway and you losing, right? Um, I think that's so important, but you also have the data to back it up. And it's not numbers that you've run just from lists and just from from pixels on a screen. It's because you have shown up day in and day out um, and you're in community and in relationship. You're actually in relationship with people in your communities across these uh, huge, huge districts, which is a feat unto itself. And I think also just speaks to the type of infrastructure that is necessary to do the work that you do. So you already mentioned the California donors table. Not every state has a donors table. There are many organizations that are thinking about it and trying to push it forward. But that's huge in terms of a, a in terms of money. You talked about census outreach and being able to really use the census as a way to continue the relationship building, but also to get real numbers, right? And to actually change the electoral calculus. Right. So those are the like it strikes me that there is a, an amount of infrastructure that folks can be advancing in their states, possibly um, if they don't have it. But I'm curious about the from you, other things that you're seeing that you feel like are important from your experience and from these races in particular. I want to be clear that my admiration of my admiration for Georgia and the people who work in Georgia, right? Even though I may come across differently, right? I just want to say like, there are so many people who I've met from Georgia who I admire because of the work and the work that they do, right? At the top, the first person that I'm going to say, right, is the leadership of Stacey Abrams, because I think that what I would say, what I would be, would just echo what she's already said, I said earlier, we're in battlegrounds. And Stacey Abrams has said repeatedly, when we battle on ideas, mm -hmm. the choice yeah. is clear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, There's too much of a mistake when, when we have it into races, right? Where Democrats want to say, I'm not a Republican, therefore I'm a good guy. Vote for me, <laughs> right? And that's just not battling on ideas, right? Oh, they are, not cutting it. There's a lack of a battle of ideas. And then, what I admire from the people in Georgia. One, it's hot in the San Joaquin Valley. I will <laughs> give it to you, right? It's just hot. It is incredibly hot in the Coachella Valley. Annalisa, who's our organizer. You've been to Georgia, Georgia right, in, in August. Coachella Valley. Have you been to Georgia in August? Because it's pretty hot. It's pretty hot there. Annalisa in the Coachella Valley, where it's 120. Um, Pedro and Fresno, right, where it's 110 with our and Rosa and Carla, mm -hmm. um, Samantha, Cassandra, right, Hatsune, all of them, ask them to go to Georgia with the humidity. <laughs> and everybody's like, oh. um, you know, the way my the way my checking account works is, you know, and direct deposit, mm -hmm. right? Shout out to Kevin Hart. Mm -hmm. yeah, right. I joke about that, right? But, <laughs> I'm not volunteering to go canvas in Georgia. Yeah. Like, no, it's it's <laughs> right. It's just hard, right? Mm -hmm. 
So no shade, no shade to Georgia. All love to Georgia. I hear all the people that are able to do that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So mad respect for them working their list to exhaustion. They placed an emphasis on door-to-door. They placed an emphasis on face-to-face conversations. So what I think is really important to to say is that text messaging is not going to get you there. Mm -hmm. Phone banking is not going to get you there. You need to be doing the work year-round. And I think that there's many of us who have learned that lesson years ago, right? And what I look forward to is just being able to continue to come together nationally to keep on banging that drum so that if you, whether you're independent or whether you belong to a political party, that we are battling on ideas the way that Stacey Abrams says, and that at the end of the day, we are actually being engaged because maybe the other thing that I would say is that the San Joaquin Valley and the Coachella Valley feed the world, right? Mm-hmm. And if there are crops that don't grow or somehow fail to yield what they were expected to yield, whether it's grapes, oranges, cotton, almonds, any of those things, we don't blame the crop. We take a look at the environment, and then we mm. we 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 investigate what our process was mm. to identify our mistakes. Mm. Then we make changes that are needed, right? But we don't ever mm. blame mm-hmm. the crop. The same thing needs to be applied to voters of color, mm. Um, mm. to voters that historically, right, have been erased and ignored. Because it's too easy of a cop-out to be like, oh, you can't trust those voters, or they just don't turn out, this and the other. You can't blame, in this case, the voters of color for not turning out for candidates that don't do the work to earn our votes. Hmm. Period. Period. Yes. (laughs) Thanks so much, um, Pablo, for joining us uh, today (laughs) and and sharing the great work that you are doing. I am am personally just so grateful that you are where you are doing that work, not just for um, not just for the Central Valley in California, but as you said, for for the rest of the country, because it's a critically important part of the country. So thank you for all your work. Well, I, I really appreciate that, Jeremy. I just want to say that, like, I feel like we are just over 10 years old. This is our um, officially our 12th year. Well, kind of officially before we actually were official on paper. It's been 11 mm-hmm. years. But I feel like we're ready for the before picture. Right, because we started with no money. Mm-hmm. We started just being able to piece things together. Um, I quit my job at that time and didn't get paid a full salary for almost two years, just so that we can make the organization work. Right, but I feel like we are now at a place where we're like getting ready to really go full speed. And the lead up is just to say, and we've just started working with you all just over a year ago. We're developing our policy platform. I get text messages from Hatsune all the time, like, check this out, right? And there's excitement. So I feel like, just wait. We're just now getting started. This is the before picture yeah. of, you know, the weight loss venture or yeah. the path, I think what it is. Yeah. It was, this is just barely the before picture, right? And so I'm really excited about the next 10 years partnering with you all. I'm super grateful for you all inviting me to be on your podcast. And uh, I continue to, to look forward to working with both of you and your team 
because it's been nothing but a pleasure every step of the way. Yeah, and shout outs to, uh, to the Samantha's, you, to Hatsune, to Cassandra, Pedro, Annalisa, and the whole Annalisa, team, the whole, the whole yes. crew at uh, CNC. Thank, thank you. you, Pablo. Peace, y'all. Take good care. Uh, thank you all. Thanks for listening. For more information, check out our list of episode resources and visit us at liberationinagenerationaction.org. Shout out to our producer and audio editor, Nino Fernandez, the design team at TrimTab, and the LibGen Action communications team. Like what you heard? Help us make some noise by telling two friends about the Racism is Profitable podcast. Until next time, y'all. Peace.